0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPOPodcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show, so please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing by subscribing you'll get the most up to date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show cool yeah we are we are recording, Sean, and uh, you know one thing I get a question about from time to time now is uh. You guys have some awesome guests on, but we want to know what you guys are up to, too. So I think, um, you know, part of these Q&A episodes, we can maybe shed some light on what Sean and I are up to in training and stuff like that. Um, you know, Sean, I think you kind of have an idea of what he's eating. He's a couple steaks, and <laughs> But uh, beyond that, I think people are kind of curious as to kind of what are you, what are you preparing for and um, what are you doing to kind of get to where you want to be in terms of peak performance and things like that um and then on top of that we've gotten quite a few listener questions and a lot of them are really great kind of um new ones actually it's not there's definitely some repeat stuff or some stuff that you know we've shared on other platforms and things like that but there's also some that are really kind of uh, unique and are fun to fun to address and you know hopefully we can at least shed some light onto some of that stuff too
1: yeah i mean it's i'm just looking at the other questions we got a whole bunch of questions and just so people know uh because we have this patreon thing and so we 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 tend to preference the people that are patrons to get their questions answered first and so one thing we'll ask you guys if you guys are members of Patreon and you want to send us a question just note that at the beginning so we know to note that otherwise we do we just have to cross reference this stuff and so if you just say hey i'm a patron listener here's my question we'll make sure we'll we'll see that quicker and get that highlighted but um yeah, I mean, uh, you know, training-wise, um, for me, you know, it's it's about doing some rowing stuff. Um, that's, that's mostly been my focus. In fact, I've been almost exclusively doing that for about two months, just trying to get get faster and faster to a point where I can, you know, attempt a, a thousand-meter world record. Uh, and then I'll then I'll then I'll switch more back to standard my standard sort of working out with a focus on getting stronger uh, and then kind of cycle stuff. I, for for me, you know, it, it's fun to cycle through different sports or different goals is because it keeps you from getting so damn you know monotonous and beating you down so i like to you know i like to do that and you know my 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 even though i have a relatively limited menu my diet does change a little bit i'll cycle up protein and fat and, and calories uh, based on appetite as, as those things dictate you know without without sitting there weighing things out and calculating macros but fairly intuitively i'll know i just need to eat a little more you know and that's and that's how how I often do it. I mean, I suppose if I had a particular body fat percentage or I was training for aesthetics, then uh, um, you know, then it would be you know, let's really tighten up on certain macros. But but I don't have that as a goal, and so for me, it's just performance based. But Zach, let's, let's see, man. Let's get some questions here, man. Do you wanna do you wanna do that one? There's a guy named Luke. He talks about. Um, He's talking about uh, glycogen stuff, and then uh, about the faster study. I think, because you were part of that. So, Luke Garten, mm-hmm. can you want to read his? You want to read his question, and then and then go ahead and take take an answer, and I'll comment sure. if I can.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, Luke asked. Uh, he's I had a question for you guys regarding muscle glycogen values and restoration speed for athletes on a low carb, high fat diet. Uh, maybe a topic for future podcast. If you know anyone doing any research on this. I have yet to find any studies on this myself. I know Zach had it measured during the FASTER study. It showed athletes started with the same amount, lost the same, and started to restore the same as the high-carb athletes. Um, What the study didn't show is if the athletes had done any carb cycling into their diets to get them at the same glycogen values for the starting point. Also, the study shows that after two hours of rest post-shake consumption, and what he means by that is in the FASTER study, the high-fat group took a Uh, like a 300 calorie shake that was basically all fat and the high carb group took a shake that was basically all all carbohydrates and maybe a little bit of protein i can't remember if they put protein in that or not um all the athletes had glycogen values near half i'm wondering if full glycogen restoration in the low carb high fat athletes take longer to achieve than the high carb athletes past this two hour mark um he's two and a half months into a low carb high fat diet he started with a very low carb during base phase and starting to add carbs during some of his long runs and starting to do workouts. Um, hence the interest in the glycogen restoration between runs. Uh, so far, he says he's not feeling the need to add more than 50 grams of carbs a day, 100 on a, 100 grams on a long run day. However, I'm eating around 200 grams a day of protein, which might be adding to muscle glycogen through the gluconeogenesis, uh, all assumptions. Um, okay, so I'll unpack that a little bit from the beginning. The thing about the FASTER study that's, like Luke, I'm, I'll am be interested to see if there's some more studies done uh, and some deeper dives in, is the metrics that people are drawing a lot of the info from are coming from a three-hour treadmill session that was done at 65% VO2 max. So um, that's a Different. That's a little different than say like what your body's going to go through if you go out and, you know, race a marathon at, you know, an all out, like at your max potential or a half marathon or something that's going to be a little more glycolytic. Um, So I would be interested to see kind of like two things. One is what is the glycogen restoration at, you know, in given that context, more of a performance based context. And then also the thing that I think is the most pivotal in this, and this is just based on what I've seen in athletes I've coached as well and in myself, is uh, kind of the timing of everything. Um, for me and for some of the other people I've worked with, it seems like uh, time between efforts is a much bigger variable than, say, like, I need X amount of carbohydrates for this specific workout. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I feel that way is because I'll do like a big effort or a big training week, a big race or something like that, and I'll drop my carbs down to next to nothing, you know, sometimes even zero carbs. Sometimes I'll take those few days after a race and go carnivore, pure carnivore. Um, and then when I come back, I can do a speed workout without bringing back any carbohydrate um, and not feel like I lost a gear or anything and, you know, feel great doing it. Uh, so when I when I see people kind of, you know, make that claim or state that they've lost their last gear when they go too low carb, the big thing that I see happening more most often is they're training in kind of a relatively high volume compared to what they've done in the past. And they're also introducing some intensity. Um, and sometimes they're working out multiple times a day. And, you know, then you're shortening that window between efforts. So that's where I would like to see you know what's going on, and you know some more studies. So I think Luke is kind of right. I don't think there is really a whole lot of real structured studies um, on on what you're kind of looking to get the answer for. Um, there are some studies where they looked at performance in low carb, but you know those were like they took a bunch of people, they put some of them on a, a, a ketogenic diet for three weeks, and then they went to performance. Uh, and you know, the performance suffered, which is, makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I think you can, you can, you can keto adapt or you can get fat adapted in three weeks for, you know, basic purposes. But when we're talking about performance, I think, uh, you know, guys like Dominic D'Agostino have talked about this and they talk about, you know, you got to give yourself more than three weeks to expect the peak performance stuff to kind of resurface on that, um, with his uh, kind of question, with uh, wondering about the protein grams, if the gluconeogenesis is doing anything, you know, this is something that I'm also really interested in playing around with a little bit more. And over the last probably say nine months, the biggest change in my own nutrition has been, um, you know, the, the amount of meat consumption I've had, uh, like fatty cuts of meat. Uh, you know, I've gone through various different kind of periodization and in, in high fat approach. Uh, and what I've kind of noticed this last nine months is that when I follow what I like to call kind of a, uh, instead of a plant-based diet, a meat-based diet where like the majority of my nutrients are coming from fatty cuts of meat, mostly red meats. And when I say most, I'm talking probably 80 to 90% even when I'm doing my higher training loads. And then when I'm recovering, I'm going, you know, basically kind of a pure carnivore approach. Uh, I'm getting probably more protein than I was in the past and I'm noticing that I'm not, I just don't need to bring back the carbohydrates to the level that I maybe would have in the past when I followed a more clinical ketogenic type of style nutrition approach. So, you know, maybe that has something to do with the gluconeogenesis of the excess protein. Um, You know, either way, I think you want to let your body be your guide with this type of stuff. When I'm coaching an athlete with a high fat approach, what we do is we do what you did, Luke. We go back and we reset go clinical ketogenic for a while best time to do that is during recovery and maybe some low volume no or low intensity phase in training so you can give your body that kind of relief from the training stress to kind of adapt Um, and then once we start bringing back more workouts uh, if you don't feel like your workouts are suffering or you don't have to even feel you can look at data and say hey are my workouts suffering compared to where they were before you know that's what I do I look at workouts I did when I was high carb I look at workouts when I did when I was know pure keto i look at workouts when i did um in a various different context so I, I you just have this body of of kind of uh information to kind of draw from and if you're hitting your workouts at you know 50 grams of carbohydrate a day uh yeah i don't know that you really need to ch- need to change anything uh, i think when you will start looking for changes to be made is when your performance starts to dip so if your workouts start to suffer then maybe look at what you're doing differently and why that might be um so I think I kind of touched on at least most of what he did in terms of the knowledge I have. I don't know, Sean, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Well, I mean, I think, Zach, you're basically, uh, you know, I agree basically. I mean, obviously we don't have any studies where we can say we, we look at glyca- glycogen formation, you know, three hours, four hours, five hours post-exercise other than what we've seen so far. And so, I mean, my comment would be, you know, one, certainly in the context of a higher protein diet, you know, you know obviously you can make... For the most part, you can make glu- you know gluconeogenesis occur either with uh, uh, certain amino acids or glycerol when you strip off the you know the triglycerides and you, you get the glycerol molecule. You, you can you can re-shell lactate and some other things, pyruvate and stuff like that. But essentially, probably the best source for making glucose in a gluconeogenic fashion is going to be these amino acids. And so when you have a, a good amount of those, I think you're probably a little more a ben- little more beneficial at it. And I don't think um the body is going to take glucose that you have and turn it into glycogen. So it doesn't matter where that glucose comes from. And so if you are able to provide that via gluconeogenesis, then you're going to be able to take the glucose you've made from that and then convert it into glycogen. And I do think it's a chronic adaptation, exactly what uh, Zach has said, what others have said, Dom D'Agostino, and countless people have done this now. It takes, uh, you know, a period of time to adapt athletically, uh to whatever sport you're doing and then if and then if your sport now is a highly glycolytically demanding sport maybe repeat efforts maybe you're crossfit athletes, just doing two workouts a day three workouts workouts a day I do think given enough time your body can respond to that um, you know and it may just mean you you know you, it may be that you know giving yourself enough protein is a key here and that's a variable we don't have we don't really test and, that, and that's what my experience has been because I have done multiple repeat workouts within a single day without any significant dip in performance. So I know it's at least possible uh, for some people. You know, again, we don't have any great studies on that, but uh, maybe with some time we'll get there. Awesome. Let me go into uh, John Willis's question. So John's got a question. Kind of, He's got, he's got a couple things in here. So uh, this is, I'll read his question. John says, Hello, Zach and Sean. In this episode, you mentioned high fasting blood glucose and a carnivore low-carb isn't this adaptive glucose sparing when your muscles get fat adapted and refuse to take up glucose? I assume he's talking about our episode with Alessandro Ferretti, which is background episode, I don't know, nine or 10. So he says, isn't this a biological response adaptation where the body saves the glucose for the tissues, or organs that can only use glucose, the tissues that can only use glucose, you know, obviously red blood cells or there's some renal cells, possibly some of the testicular cells. And then obviously some people argue it's part of the brain. Um, so the question is, my similar is, is my question, my situation is similar in that I've noticed since going low-carb carnivore that my fasting blood glucose is typically in the 90 to 110 range. For example, I biked down to the beach this morning about a mile and a half, swam three-quarters of a mile, and biked back eating nothing this morning. Typically, I don't eat until 12 1 on a daily basis, and my fasting blood glucose was 100. Um, my typical t- carbs are around 10 to 25 grams a day. This is maybe from dark chocolate. Uh, kefir kombucha uh so i know i'm not on high carb i'm having about one and a half pounds of steak a day and then maybe a smoothie of four eggs avocado frozen strawberries raw cacao and some heavy cream and a ninja blender it says his, t- his ketones are traced in the morning at 0.5 and then higher in the four to six range which is quite high i know i don't get to hung up on that according to ben bickman that would mean ketones are being used more in the morning less uh, wasted later in the evening um and then lastly, he says he has one of those cheap blood oxygen readers, and he's noticed that my percentage since going heavy, meat, fat, will vary, and very, very little carbs has dropped from the typical 98 to 94 to 96. Um, would that mean my cells are taking up more oxygen more efficiently or less efficiently? The reason I ask is because over the winter when I could take my cold showers, water was not very cold. Now in Virginia Beef. after a cold shower, my blood oxygen levels were down in the 60% range for a few minutes, and then after the shower, they would slowly climb back into the 96 to 98% range. I'm not an elite athlete, I just do open water, swim, one mile under 27 minutes, so I'm guessing above average, I'm 4, 49, 5, 10, 180 pounds, probably 12 to 14% body fat. I forearm plank for nine minutes a day, three times a week, A couple two to three minute wall sits, swim about three quarters of a mile a couple times a week, that's it. I've also got one of those cardi check meters and track my cholesterol lately, I've been tracking my, creat- my creatin- creatinine, my numbers seem high, but I'm not sure if that's compared to the standard American diet. 1.26, 1.52, 1.71, 1.11. Uh, if you can squeeze in some insight, it would be awesome. Any site, you'd be great. Love your show. Get Volick, Finney, Nina Teicholz, Kate Shanahan would be great. Glad you got Bickman. All right, let me t- tackle some of these. Some of these are pretty easy. Um, yeah, we already had we had Nina Teicholz on. It'd be great to get Jeff Volick and Steve Finney on or Kate Shanahan. I, I agree. Those would be great guests. Zach may have a better opportunity to get those guys than I do. As far as the creatinine, the creatinine you know, numbers, on a high protein diet, I would ex and you know particularly somebody who exercises a lot, I would expect an elevated level of creatinine to be not uncommon. Does not mean a problem, you know. Hydration status can also thing, and you'll see changes in that uh, based on on those factors. So, could high creatinine level be a problem? Yes, they could. In most cases, people eating a high high, carb, high sorry high protein diet, it's, that's probably the only reason for it. So it's not an issue. Um, the uh, blood oxygen thing, you know, 90, 98% percent O two 2 sat versus 94, 96 is insi- it's, it's an insignificant difference. It doesn't matter. There's no real change there. The fact that it was lower after a cold shower is because skin temperature is going to affect that reading. And so a minor difference of one or two or three, three percentage is not anything I would worry about whatsoever. So let's get back to this question about the glucose stuff. Um, yes, I mean, there is some degree of... Uh, adaptive glucose sparing, you know, when you're not, um, when you're not uh, utilizing, uh, when you're not uh, taking in glucose in your cells, because you don't have as much glu- insulin being produced. Uh, and those cells are, you know, there's particularly muscles develop physiological insulin resistance over time. Uh, if they're, if they prefer fat or not, you know, to some degree, you're going to you're going to you're going to preference that over glucose. Um, we did see you know again with with athletes in particular, particularly ones that are uh, low carbohydrate engaging in higher intensity sports that we see a general tendency for higher blood glucose readings. There's, there's a couple studies that have now shown that using continuous glucose monitors. Um, the typical thing that you know. Uh, with blood glucose, you know, we talk about what's an ideal blood glucose. I think we have to sort of look at blood glucose stability as probably being the most important thing, uh, you know. And so if it's if it's stable, you know, most of the time uh, and you don't see these big swings, either real low or real high, that's probably the ideal situation. Your body's going to again, the best way to regulate your glucose is to make your own. And so if all your glucose is coming from gluconeogenic genesis and your body is controlling that, you're, you can be pretty sure the body is giving it what it needs. And so if you need a little bit higher glucose for what you're doing, then your body's going to provide that. You know, And again, if you get a c- continuous glucose monitor, you can see uh, what, your, what your tracings look like. And most likely, they're going to be very flat. The fact that they, the, the glucose goes up a little bit after exercise is, again, a normal physiologic response because when you're exercising, depending upon the type of exercise – if you need glucose to do that exercise, your liver is going to your liver is going to make some. Basically, your liver is going to, you know, uh, chop up that liver glycogen and push it out, and you're going to have it in the bloodstream. And that's just a part of uh, normal physiology. So I think this is just normal physiology and not pathology. Uh, you know, if, if there are other other indications that show that you had uh, problems with insulin, uh, if you had uh, problems with uh, you know, metabolic syndrome. There's many ways to measure that. Then, then, then that might be a different situation. But I think for the most part, if you're healthy, you're exercising. Um, you know, you can see glucose, particularly on a low carb diet, go a little bit higher. But as long as it's stable, I don't get too concerned about that. You know, and again, you can you can you can uh, focus on that and, and check those numbers. You know, you can get a you can get a blood glucose monitor or CGM continuous glucose monitor, and, and check for yourself and see, see what's really going on. But uh, in general, uh, you know, the comment about the ketones, uh, yeah, I mean, again, that's something, you know, how much are you producing? 0.5, you know, for most people, they'll consider that, you know, the, the, the definition as per uh, Steve Finney and Jeff Volek was 0.5 uh, millimolar per liter, which is where you're at. Uh, they have since, I know Steve Finney has since gone on to comment that even lower levels you know, as they're seeing as per their viral health trial uh, might even indicate nutritional ketosis. So even if it gets down to 0.3 or 0.4 or even maybe point two, 0.2, uh, that may still represent ketosis per se. And again, the relevance of that is still uh, debated, whether it's, you know, wh- whether it's higher in the evening. Um, I don't know if there's a, there, there probably is some sort of circadian biology diurnal rhythms that, that, that can, you know, um, affect, time of day in ketone readings. I'm sure sure some of that information is out there. I know when we talk with Ben Bickman about how insulin can 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 affect that as well. Insulin insulin being lowered or higher might allow for that. So if your insulin is particularly low, uh maybe in the evening, um, then you can you might see higher ketones based on that simply. Zach, any comments?
0: uh not a whole lot i i would just add like i think you know context is important with a lot of that stuff especially with like the ketone readings which i think you kind of um recognized from our episode uh about that and then same with uh the you know the the glucose stuff like you know for for a lot of athletes i think when they're training hard they're going to see those fasting glucose levels a little bit higher if you're if if it's a concern i think you would maybe want to like wait until you've had a stretch of recovery and maybe get them checked in and see if they change at all. Um, but like Sean said, I think it's more about, it's more about the, the consistency of it as opposed to anything. Um, should, yeah, let's, should we jump up to the kind of the top and get, uh, Antonio J Woodley's question in?
1: Yeah. You want to, you want to take that one? I guess. Mm Sure.
0: Says, uh, he says, I just finished listening to episode 9 of the HPO podcast, which I believe was, was that Chris? Chris Bell, I think. Um, really enjoyed it, you and Dr. Baker, and doing an amazing job. I do have a few questions that maybe will be answered in, this, in the episode I have not listened to yet. If not, here are the questions. What is your opinion on being on a carnivore diet and also taking supplements like Onits Alpha Brain or other supplements of that nature that Joe Rogan is always promoting? I have always been under the impression that Onnit-type supplements only take what is beneficial from plants and other foods without the fiber or the ingredients that do not benefit the body. Please speak about that on the next Q&A. They have a lot of supplements on their website, and hopefully you can touch on them. Um, I guess I would say like I don't know all of Onnit's supplements. I do know they have a, a... pretty good return policy so if you got it and decided this doesn't work for me or this doesn't do what they say it does they're gonna um refund you um which tells me that they believe in their product tells me that they've probably done some research on what it's doing with double blind studies and all that stuff um but at the end of the day i think and i mean i think on it and joe would say this as well is that you know your day-to-day nutrition is key That's where you should be kind of focused on, and then once you get that figured out, like that's when like maybe trying to try out some of these like alpha brain type things or some of these nootropics, they could be kind of like this um, this this extra benefit that that you'd be able to to get from something like that. And you know, my thought has always been like before you try taking a supplement that you'll have a hard time knowing if it's really doing something or not. Um, you know, get your diet figured out so you have a good understanding of how your body feels when it's optimized. You know, then maybe try out some of that stuff and find out does this kind of give me a little bit of an extra edge or not? Um, and then you know, spend your spend your money on on what is going to be the most beneficial for you. So, I don't know, what do you think, Sean?
1: Yeah, I think you know, in general, if I were to take a generic human being, say this is a generic healthy human being, I could feed them correctly. And I don't think they need any supplementation whatsoever. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of generic human beings running around. And so there are some people where supplementation may be of benefit. I would say that, you know, just what Zach says, get your diet on point, you know, and then you can see. um, I don't take any supplements. You know, I just, again, for me, if something's going to work, it better make a big, significant difference. And you better be able to objectively say, yes, this made me 10% 10% stronger, 10% faster, something that's purely tangible, and then you need to take it away and, and, and see that that effect goes away and, and clinically reproduce it if it's not doing it for you. And I would argue most supplements don't have that kind of track record. Most of it is placebo effect, most of it is, I don't know if it didn't, did anything at all? You might imagine something for a few days or something like that. So, uh, again, I'm not going to say that one supplement doesn't work or, or does. I'd say that there's many of them that don't. That's for sure. There's a lot of money's been wasted over the years with supplementation. Um, but if you, uh, you know, get to where you're at a point where you know your diet is good and you're still lacking something, and you want to try a supplement, and it clearly makes a difference then I'm fine with that you know but uh, again let's be honest about it let's be clear about it let's be objective about it and if it's not then then save your money you know I, You know, and, I, and obviously I like Joe Rogan I mean he's he's done good things for both Zach and myself I haven't on his show and stuff like that but at the same time um, I'm not going to promote something that I have no proof that it works and, and again I don't know I don't take the supplements I haven't studied those supplements I don't know what's in them I don't you know really have plans to, to learn what's in them uh, so but but just a general philosophy would be would be if it's not making a significant, tangible, objective difference in your life, then you gotta question, is it worth it or not? And uh, and, that's, and I think that's just, I think that's the answer for anything, for anything, whether it's diet or exercise or anything else. Mm-hmm. Let me go on to this next question here. It looks like it's from uh, Tom Culver, I think. Yep. All right. Okay, Tom says, Gentlemen, I enjoy listening to your podcast. I have a quick question for you. I'm a 57-year-old male, and I work out with weights, walking, and golf when seasonally possible. I went to the VA for a yearly physical earlier this month. I've been doing carnivore for two months. My blood work on cholesterol during the last year went from 244 to 307. My LDL went from 186 to 246. The doctor wants me to go on statin. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) And I am resistant. Any good articles you would recommend to give to the doctor to explain better why I cannot that i can why statins are not a good course of action thanks all for your hard work and dedication you know this is a, such a recurring thing we've had shows on that. you know we had we had uh dave dave feldman on we had Ivor cummins on to talk about this issue and it continues to come up um first of all you know we have to remember that the lipid system is very dynamic and so you know, if you're in a weight loss phase, that can change dramatically how much your cholesterol spikes. You know, there are studies out there that show that if you fast for one week, you don't eat anything, your cholesterol will go up by as much as 36%. And so we know that that system can change dramatically, and so to, to rely on just one reading – First of all, is folly. You know, you need you need to be looking at some other factors. Let's look at your triglyceride, your HDL ratio. Let's look at your total to HDL ratio. Let's look at things like your hyper your insulin status. Let's look at things like your glucose status. Let's look at things like your uh, uh, inflammatory markers. Let's look at your waist to height ratio. Uh, all those things make up our, our overall risk for cardiovascular disease, your exercise capacity, so on and so forth. So we got to put the whole picture and not just take one slice of the pie and, and, and taste and assume it tastes the same everywhere because it doesn't necessarily. Maybe that's not the best example, but… <laughs> I guess pies generally taste the same everywhere if you're eating. But but what I'm trying to say is you can't just take one number and, and, and assume this, this represents your entire risk profile. The other thing you need to look at is something called remnant cholesterol, which Dave Feldman goes into, where we take our total cholesterol, we subtract both our HDL and our LDL, and we get a number which is you know, whatever's going to be. Typically, the lower, the better. Something under 20, so something under 15, ideally. Would be pretty nice for a remnant number, um, you know. If your doctor's insisted upon that, I would say let's get some baseline numbers. If you're gonna if you're gonna continue with the diet, it might make sense to go get some baseline screening, either a carotid artery calcium scan, which you can get. I got one myself the other day. I haven't got the results yet back, uh, but you can get it for a hundred bucks, something like that. Just go, just go get it done, and then you can then you can track things over the next. Uh, two or three years, five years, and see how things are progressing for you. Uh, get a carotid intermedial thickness study. I mean, these things are you can do where you can actually, instead of guessing what's going on with cholesterol, we can see what's actually happening to the tissues themselves, which is far more indicative of what your overall risk is or what, what's actually going on from a disease status. And so I would, uh, you know, as far as the, the statins are concerned, I mean, there's a lot of data out there that shows that statins make very little difference, particularly in a 57-year-old male. Um, without a prior history of heart disease. I mean, there's really little great evidence to, to go on in the first place. Uh, and there's far better, uh, more predictive risk factors for predicting cardiovascular disease than total and LDL cholesterol. So those are things I would I would be asking my doctor about, not just taking it as one. Because many of the, unfortunately, we have a whole bunch of physicians out there that, that are just uneducated. And it's not that they're trying to do a bad job. It's not that they don't care; it's just they just don't know yet. And so we have to do. Sometimes our t- patients can teach us things, and, and you can be a patient that says, "Look, uh, why don't we look at some of these other things?" And if your doctor's disagreeable, I know you're at the VA. You know, you might have a chance to go to another doctor. Um, maybe I don't know. The VA system's kind of tough. I, I've, I've done some time at the VA, and uh, you know, they're 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 a government organization <laughs> that has uh, you know has some some uh, efficiency problems. But uh, anyway. That is where I would, I would, you know, there, I can't give you one study to point to. I mean, there's a, there's a body of knowledge out there. Go look at guys like Ivor Cummings, Dave Feldman, go look at Malcolm Kendrick is another guy to follow, read his stuff. He has some tremendous uh, data on what is probably more likely to be, uh, problematic for cardiac disease. Not that cholesterol has no bearing whatsoever, but I think we vastly overstate its relevance. um, with regard to overall risk and uh and i think uh you know we just have to put things in perspective zach any comments
0: yeah i mean i think just if they're looking for a place to start in terms of literature i would go to dave feldman's stuff and take a look at that i think it was episode 12 10 that we interviewed him so we talked about that a little bit and then he's got a whole lot of different information to kind of look at that stuff but like sean said i think it's one of those things where um you know cholesterol is is one thing to look at and there's other things too that you can kind of glean some information from um but yeah uh i don't have a whole lot of stuff to add to that other than what you've said um let's see who we got next uh leon macy as addressed this one hey sean uh, i'm reaching out from san diego i started eating carnivore yesterday um and just for uh clarification yesterday was probably a while ago (laughs) um (laughs) i'm a 168 pound man and about five ten and pretty lean and muscular i ate two pounds of meat and was full and felt good yesterday i woke up today and felt terrible i had a bad headache and was very nauseous i threw up i threw up and it was all clear basically looked like water i am fascinated by this carnivore diet and i want the benefits i have heard about but i am scared because i felt so shitty today i imagine there could be other factors at play though I did have bad diarrhea on Sunday, probably from eating a lot of spicy olives, Uh, felt good Monday, played a ton of basketball, my shirt was dripping wet after, maybe dehydration is occurring, I'm not sure. Do you have any thoughts or recommendations? I wanted to know if other people are experiencing this. All I ate yesterday was steak, ground lamb, and water.
1: Uh, yeah, let me answer that one, Zach, because it's more of my, my sure. alley, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, obviously one day, you know, you already had diarrhea a couple days earlier, you know, you, you threw up. It certainly could be just you, you have some kind of illness that, that's manifesting itself. So, I mean, I, that, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't discount that at all. I mean, that's probably, if I had to guess, probably the main thing. But having said that, certainly there are people that start a carnivorous diet that do have issues with gastrointestinal upset, particularly with things like, Uh, Reflux and diarrhea that is not uncommon at all Um, many times, uh, you know a lot of people will have problems with uh, Eating more fat uh, in particular, can one often leads to nausea Um, And that sometimes it takes a period of adjustment to come through a lot of people have Deficient hydrochloric acid production and so we'll see a lot of people where you know The reason we have an acid stomach at least healthy human beings have an acid stomach is because we were designed primarily through evolution to digest, you know, meat and, and and often the bacteria that came on meat. And that's why we have such an acidic stomach. And so, to to properly uh, and easily digest meat, you need to have enough stomach acid. And so a lot of people will find they have relatively poor acid production. That can be through this chronic poor diet. It can be from taking drugs like uh, proton pump inhibitors or other antacids. And so those things can lead to that. Those things can cause digestive upset and difficulty, and it can take a while to to correct that. Some people will find that supplementing, you know, things like uh, hydrochloric acid supplements like betaine hydrochloric acid or hydrochloride rather, um, things like uh, certain lipases, uh, bile supplements can be helpful initially. Uh, For most people, it's just a matter of waiting it out and giving it time. You know, sometimes you can adjust uh, the fat content either up or down. Uh, depending uh, and see how you see how you tolerate that. And again, with the diarrhea, again we have to look at the. And again, you didn't directly ask that, but it was kind of mentioned, So I'll talk about that as it's a common topic with diarrhea. Remember, what are the job of our colon? You know, it has one of the major jobs of the colon is to reabsorb fluid and electrolytes. And when we've been on a high fiber diet, you know, the percentage of water that gets in the colon is much reduced because it's it's basically bound up in a lot of the fiber. And so we're seeing a relatively, uh, you know, solid based material leaving the small intestine when you go on a fully carnivorous diet The only thing that's going to leave your small intestine is going to be liquid, right? You're gonna have an all-liquid uh, Content that's entering the top of the top of the colon, you know uh, And so what happens is the colon then has is, is, is required to absorb a greater proportion of water and it takes a while To regain that capacity, you know, if it's not been doing that for decades, it sometimes takes a few weeks or more to sort of get better at reabsorbing that fluid. Other things that often for some people trigger diarrhea tends to be uh, maybe too much fat in the food. I've seen that occur oftentimes with lots of eggs or sometimes pork seems to be causing, causing these reactions. Sometimes certain spices can do that. uh, And and cooking oils, if you go to a restaurant and they cook it in some canola oil or something like that, particularly as you become, you know, you know, more and more stricter with your carnivory, those things can all lead to, Uh, GI upset or diarrhea. And so those are things I'd see. You know, again, one day, it could be anything. I mean, it could be a cold. It could be just a little GI bug you had if you've already had diarrhea prior to even going on the diet. So that would be my guess. Zach, any comments?
0: Yeah, just like I think, um, you know, depending on where you came from in your diet, we talked about this on one of our more recent episodes too, is like it seems like people kind of transitioning over from like a strict keto diet to carnivore you know, they might transition a little quicker just because their body's a little more used to the higher levels of fat. Um, so like if you come from, you know, a different angle, it might, it might take a little longer. Everyone's going to be kind of an individual. Um, but yeah, definitely like, uh, early on one singular incident, uh, you want to put that into the right context, I think. And obviously you don't want that to keep continuing on and on and on and, but let kind of time take its place a little bit, a little bit too with that. Um, and then I would just add, like, if you're really curious about sticking to the carnivore diet um, and are curious about other pers- other people's kind of experiences in those early phases, I think you probably would want to go check out Charles Washington's page on Facebook, Zeroing In On Health. Um, they've got 20 to 30,000 people over there, I think, that all had to have started at some point. So they may be able to give you a little more insight into kind of what they went through or if your experience matches any of theirs and things like that, too. Um, cool next one is Jeremiah Markway he says uh, one we ranch and raise cattle and sheep so I have access to good meat I also hunt and eat a lot of elk deer, turkey, rabbit, etc I love most any meat so much of the wild game and even a large part of beef lamb and hogs such as the hindquarters are pretty lean do you have good suggestions for getting more fat into the meal when eating the lean cuts um so that's part one i'm just gonna quick answer that (laughs) and i'm gonna say like i think um you know adding adding like beef tallow or like clarified butter is probably the first thing i would do if i was looking to raise the fat to protein contents um sean is that something you would think would be the best move if you're eating really if you if you just have access to seemingly very lean cuts of meat and you want the higher fat
1: yeah i mean certainly just add some you know add animal fat you know whether mm-hmm. it's uh, pork belly i mean if you got some hogs you should be able to get some fat off of those guys um yeah i mean tallow duck fat you know uh lard you know lamb's tallow i mean all those things are are, are nice uh flavorful and you know you know again i would preference those and then if i uh, and then after that i would go to things like ghee and butter and i think uh uh, you know, if I had my choice, I would cook with the animal fats first, and then I would add those things, and I would avoid. And beyond that, yeah, I don't see a reason to add any other fats. I mean, I don't think that you need to add olive oil or coconut oil, or certainly some of the other vegetable fats like canola oil or soybean oil. Those things are, in my view, just make you sick. But uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would, I would go with the animal fats.
0: Cool. And then um, Jeremiah follows up with, "I'm a little confused when people talk about grams of protein and fat, and then talk about ratios of each." Like I said, I want to keep this simple. What do you recommend? If I'm feeling a little hungry or weak, is that a sign of I'm not getting enough protein or fat? Um, I would start by saying like, well, when they're talking about ratios, they're talking about like kind of the percentage of fat and the percentage of protein they're getting from their cut of meat. So uh, like like Sean has said in the past, you know, if you take a ribeye, chances are you're getting about 70% fat and 30% protein. Um, And then uh, when it comes to hunger or weakness, Uh, Usually someone I would think that's eating a lot of animal products, it's probably not a low protein issue. It's probably more of like you're getting maybe, and you may have alluded to this in the beginning of your question, a little too high protein and you're lacking a little bit on the energy side of things, which would be the fat. Um, Sean, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean, you know, again, if you're hungry, I mean, you gotta, you got first, how much food am I eating? Am I eating, you know, am I eating six ounces of meat? You know, and that's it for the day. I mean, some people will <laughs> do this; they'll say, well, I'm eating a pound of meat," and I'm a, I'm a six foot two, two hundred twenty pound guy. I'm like, well, you're just not eating enough food. So, you got first question is, are you eating enough food? So, assuming you're eating enough food, and, and again, these are throwaway, sort of random, arbitrary numbers, but I think for most males, about two pounds a day is, is pretty decent. Most females, about a pound and a half. Again up and down a little bit on that, but that that would be my sort of, am I getting this minimal amount of food uh, to get through the day uh, to hit my basal metabolic rate? And then beyond that, you can say, well, how much protein am I getting? You know, generally if you're eating meat and you're eating two pounds of meat, you're going to have enough protein, right, for the most part, if you're just a normal human being. Now, if you're a bodybuilder trying to put on size, then we're in a different discussion here. But for the average Joe, just, you know, hanging out, doing what they're needing to do, trying to fuel energy, then you talk about, I hit enough protein, and then maybe now let me up my fat a little bit. Let me go a little fattier kind of meat instead of eating, uh, uh, you know, sirloin. I'm gonna I'm gonna have some ribeyes. And so that, that's how that's how I would just in general terms approach this. So like I said, uh, make sure you're eating enough. Um, you know, assuming you're eating enough, probably you got enough protein unless you have some other requirement for bro- protein, which would be muscle building or really heavy exercise. And then if that's not the case, then I would say uh, go a little bit of fattier cuts.
0: Cool. And, uh, he had one other comment there that was less of a question. I'll just summarize real quickly that his, uh, ranching operation is in central Missouri and that we have an open invitation to visit Sean. So when we take this podcast on the road, we'll have to set up shop down there at some point. (laughs) Um, and then also just, uh, um, some stuff about, uh, um, just the production practices and a lot of the kind of the the information that's spread out in the media about like ranching, cattle raising and sustainability and all that stuff which is I find uh, uh, pretty interesting because like as you know like this question came in before we had Dr. Place on the episode and before we had uh, Professor uh, Loner on as well so we started to kind of touch on some of the things that he's mentioning there in a couple of podcasts um, and we are currently trying to schedule alan savory as well to maybe get kind of another angle on the same issue but from a different a little bit of a different approach um but other than that thank you for the question jeremiah and the insight and the invitation so hopefully hopefully one of us can get down to missouri eventually and visit what you got going on down there um let's see how many more do we have on here (laughs) <laughs> we got a lot of questions, man. They pile let's up. Get,
1: let's get. Uh, let me see who's next. One we got. Uh, Jess Farrell. I guess I could do that one real quick. Cool. Let me do, let me do Jess. Jess Farrell. I'm still getting adjusted. I'm not yet in a good routine, and my diet is changing a bit every day. I seem to be sensitive to eggs now, and maybe always was, but pretty soon I'll be able. I will, I will probably just be beef. But the other day I walked out of the grocery store, 1.6 miles round trip. On the way back. The joints in my right knee, hip and knee started to hurt at the time I got back there quite aggravated. This isn't too uncommon for me as I was a horseback riding accident when I was a teenager in which my foot somehow got twisted into stirrup leather, and I was dragged by my right leg. I was unconscious for the dragging part but came to very shortly after, ouch, fortunately I was wearing a helmet which cracked all the way through. Without it, I'd be a lot worse and some pain here and there. Anyway, the joints in that leg have been messed up since then, no surprises there. Uh, but it was weird that when I was, went out again later that day, the pain was gone. Usually, once it's there, it's there for at least the day. All I'd done differently than usual was, was diet related. I ate some burgers and didn't eat anything bad. I saw Patrick C. post this on the Meat Heel site. An exception, an excerpt from his response to me was just in general terms and not to be taken as medical advice. A stronger joint is a healthier joint and is relatively more resistant arthritis. In my view, diet plays a huge role in joint pathology with meat being the least likely substance to contribute to it. it sounds like one of my quotes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it was. That's what I, yeah, I generally say. That. This is really interesting, but would you ever expect meat to help the same day? Or am I probably making it too much of a fluke? Though I do have autoimmune issues, I've never been diagnosed with anything joint-related like arthritis. If it's just non-arthritis inflammation, it doesn't make more sense that eating meat would help. I haven't had, hadn't, I hadn't eaten yet that day, and when I made the first trip out, I think for once, I hadn't eaten eggs that day. When I went out the second time, just quality, good quality beef. Figuring these health issues out has been like an untying an enormous knot. You know there must be a way to do it, but you don't necessarily know where to attack. Thankfully, I'm getting a little closer and closer each day. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, unless she has a PS here. Are there any books you'd most recommend for learning about nutrition and process involved here? I'd like to be able to read some published research, but I don't know where to get with the basics. All right. Um, so just a general question about uh, joint pain and diet in general. Uh, I think clearly, diet plays a significant role, and a much more significant role than we've thought in the past, with regard to joint pain. I think you know we've had guests like uh, Dr. Gary Fetkeon, who's another orthopedic surgeon. We went over this. Clearly, it does. Can it have an acute effect? I think it does. I think you can have an acute effect where uh, you know this pain gets better. I, I, I've seen literally hundreds and hundreds upon. Uh, anecdotes now people saying that their joints have gotten tremendously better and then often very rapidly within days in many cases not always but but fairly commonly so yeah i do think that probably you know it's not necessarily just the eating beef in the diet, but excluding those things that um, are triggering joint pain probably again maybe it's maybe it's uh, mediated through gut permeability as per our episode with top chabatoth uh, indicates uh, and so um yeah, I think, uh, again, a stronger heart joint is a healthier joint. I think, you know, exercise is good. Strengthening joints are good, even if they are, even if they do have arthritis. I think it still make sense to strengthen those joints. Getting your diet uh, ideal, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a carnivorous diet. Uh, for many people, that is the most effective one. Some people can do just as well with a, you know, a meat diet that includes some other foods, but you just have to figure out what those foods might be. Uh, so the easiest way maybe is to go full carnivore figure that out, and then and then slowly add that food back in and see what affects your joints and what doesn't. But yeah, eggs can be something people are sensitive to. Uh, I personally, if I eat too many of them, it'll cause some GI upset for me. Uh, so I usually keep them as side dishes, you know, I might have them. I'll have a steak with two or three eggs on the side occasionally, but uh, I don't eat a lot of them. So any other uh, thoughts on that, Zach?
0: Uh, the only thing I have would be you know, a personal experience. When I first started kind of keto low carb, I really struggled with eggs, um, especially if they weren't like thoroughly cooked. I noticed like if I would eat like say sunny side up or even like uh, kind of more of a runny scramble egg, I'd get kind of nauseous. Um, but then if I would hard boil them, like nothing, no no issues. And since kind of, you know, I mean, that was a long time ago. I was like almost seven years ago when I started um, but since I've gotten to be, I think, you know, better able to tolerate any form of type of egg stuff. But like, like Sean said, I think, um, you know, if you're to doing a carnivore diet, uh, you know, maybe if you're having trouble with eggs, you know, maybe stick to red meat for a while and, and, and try cooking them a little more thoroughly or something and go from there. But, uh, other than that, I think, uh, you probably answered it as good or. Probably way better than I would.
1: <laughs> hey, let's do let's do one more question, man. Let's do uh, this one from uh, goodness. How do you say that? Canet Usel can sell, I think. Sure. It, okay, go. ahead. You do that one, man. And I'll comment.
0: Okay, cool. Um, love the podcast, guys. I'm thrilled you are making one of one for my long drives and longer flights. I've been low carb since 2006 and dabbled with keto and water fasting for seven days, and most recently even vegan. I tried vegan for 30 days and it didn't really do much for or against me, to be honest. But I did see my strength training and endurance plateau and eventually degrade. I reverted back to my classical paleo lifestyle and started experimenting with higher percentage of red meat in my diet and noticed my mood was much better and had recovered faster. However, whenever I ate more starchy carbs or even had one to two beers, I immediately gained abdominal fat. This is, despite hard strength training sessions, religiously three days a week of the classical compound movements, and I do adult gymnastics on my off days for mobility, so about an hour a day every day. Enough background, here's the question. I've just started zero carb three days ago, but to my surprise, my mood has immediately improved. I have less anxiety, fear, and generally more tolerance for negative circumstances, I'm not and have never been a morning person, but now I wake up at 6 a.m. like a rooster and I'm wide awake, like I want to clean the house. (laughs) That's a good sign that you have a lot of energy, I suppose. Uh, My question is, are there any studies on carnivore diet and depression or anxiety that you know of? I'm quite optimistic to see what the future holds in terms of body recomposition, but for now, the side benefits have been most welcome. Okay. Okay. Well, there was like some background info there and then which were kind of almost questions to some degree. I think they're just like kind of running through their thoughts and their own experience. Um, you know, the, the Sean, you can probably answer this one. Uh, I'll, I'll, add, uh, I'll add from my personal experience since uh, I guess my biggest point of relation to this question is like when I've done zero carb, pure carnivore, it's been for kind of shorter windows of time. And like I kind of said in the beginning of the podcast, like the way I describe my diet right now is it's meat-based and kind of like a, if you flip plant-based on its head, like most a lot of people say they're plant-based, but they still do eat a little bit of meat, a little bit of eggs, a little bit of dairy, that sort of thing. Mine's kind of the opposite. I eat a whole bunch of meat, and then I'll have a little bit of um, uh, like like plant food, I guess, and it's like probably anywhere in the ten percent to maybe twenty percent range at the very most um and then i'll do phases of enduring recovery where you know i'll go kind of zero carb carnivore for a few days or upwards to a week um and uh when i'm like my most recent kind of like cycle with that is i kind of i came off a 140 mile training week um that had a couple of uh kind of tempo based speed sessions in it as well so it wasn't all just long slow efforts um and then i i after I finished that week, I went kind of strict carnivore for uh, as soon as I finished that final that final run, uh, and I took the next day off and uh, came back that following morning and did uh, a shorter in distance, but pretty intense speed workout where I did 10 by 60 seconds um, at like a sub five minute, kind of between like a four minute, 40 second and five minute pace. For those 60 seconds with like a 60 second kind of recovery jog. Then I did um, a 10 minute recovery job and ended with uh, kind of a two mile like tempo slash progression effort that was like about 535 mile and a 519 mile, I think. So like for me, what that kind of says, and I've, I've ran this type of setup before with like a ketogenic diet Is What I keep noticing with myself is that when I put in a big week that should make me feel pretty tired or pretty sore and not wanting to do a speed workout, um, when I can go zero carb or really low carb and kind of cut out a lot of stuff that I don't really need, I notice I feel like I bounce back a lot quicker and I'm able to kind of get back into training and do a speed session. Um, So I'm introducing a little more time with like a full day off, which I think is you know kind of go back to what we talked about earlier with um you know glycogen replenishment and stuff like that there might be something going on there um but you know you know generally speaking i think when you're doing these like <laughs> these like kind of shorter term intro experiments and stuff like that like let your body be your guide to to a degree and kind of go from there um sean you what can you add um, I know you've talked about before about like the waking up, feeling ready to go and stuff like that. So maybe you can add to that part as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to comment on the depression, anxiety parts. I think that's, that's, you know, yeah. I mean, I think most people find their energies is better on the diet. I mean, I'll just leave it at that. And I think you find that you're, I always wake up before I, I never have an alarm clock anymore. I just wake up spontaneously, you know, with the sun or just before the And I think you're getting more in touch with your diurnal rhythms. And I think your circadian rhythms, I think, you know, when you're, you know, when you're in, kind of naturally on that clock, your body knows when to wake up and it starts to upramp cortisol and glucose and, and testosterone. These other hormones, you know, kind of rise as you start your day. And so I think, uh, and then you just wake up naturally. And I think I'm, I'm in tune with that. I think that helps diet, among other things, are helpful. But when, when you talk about, is there any data or studies that talk about depression and carnivore diet? I haven't seen any directly with a carnivore diet per se, but I can talk about some of the things that would suggest that there may be a link there. And, you know, we had George E, Dr. George E, who's a psychiatrist, and we touched on this a little bit. Clearly, we know there are a number of uh, pathological conditions uh, that we see with metabolism, which are clearly associated with uh, mental health disorders, you know, depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, so on and so forth, Hyperinsulin- hyperinsulinemia being one of the major ones. We also know that people that have uh, clinical uh Uh, depression and and other things also often have uh, gut disorders. And so I think those things go hand in hand. I think the carnivore diet does a pretty good job of addressing both of those issues. Additionally, we know at least in animal, well, we know in in human and animal studies, uh, you know, for instance, people with lowered cholesterol uh, have uh, tendencies towards higher amounts of depression, higher amounts of violence, higher higher amounts of suicidality. Uh, We see people that have lower carnitine or carnosine levels, Typically, people that exclude meat from their diet. Those levels are lower. We also noted that those things, when they're low, are also associated with mental health disorders. We know there's animal studies clearly that demonstrate that uh, uh, some, I think it's either carnosine or carnitine. One of the two, I can't remember offhand, is, is clearly an anxio- anxiolytic, so it prevents anxiety in animals when when, when administered. And so, again, maybe a, a big dose of steak is a, is a happy pill. <laughs> and I think, you know, and again, I think it's the combination of the cholesterol, the, uh, the, the carnosine, the carnitine, the zinc, uh, you know, iron, you know, some of the B vitamins all probably promote better overall health. And I think that translates into brain health. And I think we can't dissociate uh, better just overall health and and, and feeling good. And so I think there's some pro positive mood stimulating, um, mood enhancing substances in meat. And I think the the lack of deficiencies also are what's causing that net and fixing the insulin status. And so again, the insulin status is not going to fix overnight, but I do think there's, you know, there's a reason people, people enjoy eating meat and it makes them happy. And I think that's part of it.
0: Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So that should, that's a good, a good dose of, uh, listener questions and hopefully some answers that they'll be satisfied with. Um, you know, it's always interesting cause you know, with a lot of the stuff, I think, you know, Sean and I were, we, we like the podcast. We like sharing what we've seen in ourselves. We like to share what we've seen with other people and we really love bringing on some of the experts we've had. So, um, you know, I think, uh, there's a, the cool thing about getting these questions is that there's people out there that are kind of curious. They're looking to try things out. They're looking to try to optimize themselves. And, um, we, we always love to see kind of what everyone's up to and what they're noticing because uh, we're curious guys.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. We love the questions. Keep, keep submitting them. You know, you guys, uh, you know, we're all learning. We all learn. You, we learn from somebody else's question. You know, somebody will learn from your question. It's the same thing I say about submit your questions, submit your stories, be, and be curious, you know, be skeptical. I think it's important to be skeptical too. You know, we got to keep pushing the buttons. And we'll learn some stuff. Some of the things that... Uh, you know, I thought we were right turn out not to be right or you know, I've, I've revised those things. I think that's how um, You know, it should be and I think we should be open to that stuff and so um, Yeah, so Zach what else we got going on? We still got a butcher box sponsor uh, Maybe we'll get some other sponsors down the road. I know thrive market we're still we're still working with those guys a little bit So there's discount codes for those things. Yep. Um, maybe hopefully some different. Maybe some other sponsors down the road we'll see maybe you know like i said we'll see how this thing grows maybe we'll be able to do put this thing on the road and uh you know go 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 do the tour like some of the other podcasts do. we'll see you guys keep uh for you guys um subscribe that helps us you know if you subscribe to the podcast um you know it just it helps us with the overall download and helps us uh continue to be successful with this we're continuing trying to upgrade our our production value, you know, we're, we've had some audio issues with, you know, some of it has to do with the guests having the right setup, and we can't always control what the guests have as far as their audio equipment. You know, maybe obviously if we had our own studio, you know, that would be, be easier to control right now. We're kind of at the mercy of what the guests have sometimes. So um, anyway, I think that's all I got to say today, Zach. Anything else?
0: Yeah, um, I'll just add, uh, if you are interested in the Butcher Box side of things, if you enter HPO, that gets you the discount. Um, and it you know helps us out a bit. So if you're if you're interested in that, um, yeah, then it would be greatly appreciated. You know, obviously the Patreon folks have been been awesome. We love uh, that you decided to help us out. Um, and on the on the Patreon side of things, you know, Sean and I we get it. Some people are able to donate, some aren't. That's why we put the podcast out for free. After a couple weeks on Patreon, we want everyone to have access to it, regardless of whether you can. Uh, afford to support us with that stuff or not Uh, but just a big thank you for those of you who chose to kind of give us some stuff on the Patreon Mm -hmm. side of things and um, we'll keep trying to move the podcast forward. Uh, One thing we're kind of working on right now is getting a setup so that our guests actually have a local recording. Um, What that'll do is it'll help kind of eliminate any of the um, audio issues that are kind of subject to just being like long-range calls and things like that. So um, you know, hopefully a few episodes down the road, we'll have that in place and that it'll just make the listening experience a little better. We love the content and guests, so we hope to just kind of keep moving everything else forward as well.
1: Awesome, Zach. Who do we, who's our next guest? Do we know who we got coming up next? Uh,
0: yeah, that's a good question. I always confuse who we've recorded and not released yet and <laughs> who's coming up. No,
1: I think we've got, uh, I think next week we've got James Antonio, right? I think he's our yeah. next kid. No, no, or or, no, no. We got we got Bobby Maximus coming. Bobby Maximus, next. yeah, uh huh. Bobby Maximus, he'll be fun to talk to. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He's a he's an interesting dude. So, mm-hmm. he's got a good good uh good background. So he'll be fun.
0: Cool. Yeah. Well, I think we can uh, cut this one off. But otherwise, uh, we'll get to some more questions and answers uh, down the road. We'll send us anything you guys got in the meantime. Hey, folks. Thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, We are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show, a ButcherBox subscription plan uh, that will send you meat. So it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't-have-to-go-to-the-grocery-store type of approach. That gets you high-quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences
1: yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass finished, antibiotic free, hormone free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then reverse sear or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good, and very high. Uh, Flavor has been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store, this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And folks, if you want to support the show, go over to ButcherBox, get yourself an order of some high quality meat, and type in the promo code HPO, and you'll get a discount as well as some free bacon. And you can eat that meat knowing that you help keep this podcast going. Thanks again. Back to the show. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at HPO podcast at gmail.com that's hpo podcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at ZBitter. That's at Z B I T T E R. And you can find Sean at S Baker M D, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram. Where you can find me at Zach Bitter. That's at Z A C H B I T T E R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker 1967. That's at S H A W N B A K E R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast.